0: So, this week, we are going to be looking at two full chapters. I'm not going to read the entirely two. It's, it's a bit longer, but it won't be full. Verses, chapters 17 and 18. We are now beyond this, the 12 judges. The judges are no longer going to appear for the last four chapters of the book. Now what is happening is the author is zooming in on what is going on amongst the people in Israel. We're not looking at the judges. now. It's going to, this is what day-to-day life is like in Israel when they are their own kings. Okay. So we're going to read... Chapter 17, 18, I won't go through it because I kind of chop and cut and paste, so let's follow what's up on here, though we will talk about the whole of those two chapters. So, there was a man in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And and he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord." And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was was a Levite and he sojourned there. And a man and the man departed from the town of Bethlehem into to in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I, can, where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to, be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe to Zorah and to Eshteol to spy out the land and to explore it. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshteol, their brothers uh, said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise, and let us go up against them. For we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So six hundred men from the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol, and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. And when they, re- when they turned aside there, and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah, and asked him it- about his welfare, now the six hundred men of the Danite ar- Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone, out- gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priests stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these, when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us, and be, a, be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be, be priest to the house of one man, Or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah's house were called out and they overtook the people of Dan. They shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made, and the, priest and, go, and, sorry, and, and the priest, and go away, and what have I left? How do you ask, ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. They came, this is the people of the Danites, to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth-Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Okay. It's, I love the stories in Judges. But let me begin with a, a secular, I wouldn't even call him a Jew, his name is Yuval Noah Harari. He's a philosopher and teacher in Israel. He's an, Israel, uh, he's an Israeli I would not call him a Jew. He is not in no way a practicing Jew, uh, not a Christian, secular, to the nines. But he is an interesting character, and he's written a lot of. It. He's a fascinating guy to listen to and read because he's just thoughtful. He's creative, and one of the things he, he speaks about is about where we're we going as a people, as humanity. And he predicts that within 200 years, humanity will be God. Now, don't go crazy. He doesn't. He's not thinking will be divine spirits what he's is saying is we have always understood the gods to be that which creates controls knows everything and lives eternally and he says the way we have embraced technology and the way things are moving it's really just a matter of time before we learn how to create which we're already doing a pretty good job of uh, control everything and know everything and eventually even live eternally in some way now uh, He's not speaking, you know, Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, There's other, it's more nuanced. There's a lot of scary kind of science going on out there. But uh, what he says, here's the key, though. He says, this is inevitable. He says, humanity is so, so proud, it's going to try this. It's going to attempt to become God even more so than it has. The challenge will be at the crossroads. At the crossroads, humanity will have to decide, is it going to serve technology or will technology serve humanity? Where are we going to go? And he uses a pretty practical example, and he says, you know, historically, and he, you've heard me say the similar thing. Historically, humanity used to trust God to tell us who we are, what things are, what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. Then, over time, from the Enlightenment, you have us looking at ourselves. I decide what is wrong. And he says, we're now in the midst of something that is a, a scary shift which is we're no longer even trusting ourselves, we're now trusting algorithms, computers. Because now when you want to know who to marry or where to go to school or what to eat for dinner tonight or what church to go to, you Google it. And so the answer in Google comes to you from an algorithm. right? It takes your pressed uh, search history, it takes who has paid Google the most money to be first in the search list, and then it tells you, go to the Bahamas. So now who is the authority you're trusting with your life? Technology. And if that's the case, he says, if we begin to trust technology to be the authority for everything we do, we're in deep trouble. And so he's one of these people sounding a a siren here. And he goes, uh, where he is right is this, humanity will always trust something to tell it what to do. That's what we do. Whether it's us, whether it's God, whether it's technology or Oprah, someone is telling you what to do. And that is true and he makes a very ominous prediction in a book he wrote called Homo Deus, which is man-God, man becoming God. And he says this, history began when man created God, and human history will end when man becomes God. Now, he is not a Christian, and I will return to him to point out a problem in his thinking at the end. But let's remember Harari, and now turn to the book of Judges, because I wish he were a Jew, because he would have understood at least part of the problem in his statement which is humanity sought to be God a long time ago. This is not a new invention. We have been trying to be God ever since we disobeyed him in the garden. That is literally the point of the Bible. And so when Judges comes and says 3,000 years ago, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, it is not them, it's not the author crying out and saying they needed David. And you'll see that in your community groups. That's the wrong reading. Because the people who are writing the book of Judges are in exile. See, the book of Judges is written by people either in exile, recounting the old stories, or who have just gotten out of exile. You know how we know? Because verse 30 that we just read says um, that this shrine that the Danites made are there until the day of the captivity of the land. See what's happening? The person writing this knows about the exile, which means this is being written at very least by somebody in exile, a priest, or after. And so... That person is in exile knowing that the reason they're in exile is because human kings have failed them and led them into exile. That's the point of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, to show you that human kings fail. So one thing this guy cannot be doing when he says there is no king in Israel is saying exclusively anyway, we need a good human king. What he's saying is you need an ultimate cosmic spiritual king. And when you lack that and you try to make yourself God, The results are catastrophic. In that regard, Harari is, I'm on par with him. Everything else, I disagree with him. But in that regard, he's right. And this passage shows us what happens. It shows us what sort of gods we become when we become God. It's the inevitable outcome. And if you're not there now, you are some form of this if you're not following God. And even us who are, remember, this is the people of God, right? that that this is about, not about the world exclusively. It's about what happens when the people of God cease to see God as their God, when they abandon the authority of Scripture, when they abandon preaching of the Word, when they abandon obedience to the Word. That This is what we become. And the three things we become are empty, misled, and brutal. And we're going to see that here, and we're going to look at the the characters. Um, Micah and his mom in the first part, the Levite, that that Levite who is not named intentionally, and then the Danites, the group of the, the tribe. So let's start with um, empty. We become empty. So one of the things you notice in, in, in the Book of Judges and uh, and in modern Canada is this: religion is going very strong in Canada. Don't listen to people who say religion is dying. It's not. What is dying? It's flourishing. Religion is flourishing. What is dying is obedience to the God of the Bible. And this is when Revelation speaks about how things are going to go downhill as the nearer Christ, we get to Christ's return, it doesn't say that people will stop being religious. It's just that they're going to stop obeying the God of the Bible. And that is the difference. Let's not mistake spirituality for Christianity. It's not the same, and they shouldn't be confused. And so we see in Israel, there's a lot of religion. Listen to the mom. and like there not it ironic? And you see it here in the church and in Canada, but you see it right out of their mouths. It's actually, I wanted to stop while I was reading it to almost giggle. She says... Praise to God, let's now use this money. And she uses Yahweh, the covenant name. So she's talking intimately to the God of Israel. We love him, thank you for giving us this money. Now let me build you an idol. You see, in the very same breath, they're using the the name for God, but showing they don't have a clue who he is. And so this inevitably is what happens with idolatry. See, idolatry is our attempt, it's humanity's attempt to tame, master, and become God. That's what idols are of any kind. We try to tame God because if I can make Him, I control Him, and this is an idol. And it's not just physical; your idol could be any number of things. And boy, I've talked about that. And the challenge of this—and I don't have a quote, cause I literally just thought of it, like now—is um, a guy named Greg Beale who wrote a book called, I think it's called *When We Become Gods*. He's a New Testament scholar. He's written uh, lots of lots of commentaries, and he says, "What people revere, they resemble, either for their ruin or for their restoration." And this is exactly what Psalm 115 says. I think it's verse 8. When it says that people become what they worship. And it's true. And when you and I think I've said this to you before, the term for idol in Hebrew is also often used for the word empty or the nothings. And so when you worship nothing, you're going to become nothing. And this is the, what you're seeing in Micah and his mother. So let's look at the mom first. And let me see, she's not named. As you're going to notice, today you only have one person named, Micah. Next week, the last two chapters, or two weeks now, uh, the last couple chapters, you're going to see nobody has a name. And the purpose of what the judge's writer is saying is there, these are no, there's no longer any individuals left in Israel. This mother is every mother. This Levite is every Levite. And it's no longer, you can't just say, well, that was Micah's problem. No, no, that's everybody, because Israel itself has become rotten to the core. That's the, that's the assumption. And you'll see it in the last two chapters, it's just where everything falls apart. So with this mom, let's look at one thing. First, how she treats God. So God is a blessing machine, right? This is very health and wealth gospel It's very much this idea that here is God, now I'm going to have a shrine to him, and because I have a shrine in my home, he's going to bless me. Praise be to God. Um, and then, notice how she shapes her son. Her son is a scoundrel, Micah, and how did he become a scoundrel? We can't always blame the parents because we are free, free creatures. However, when he so, she's had 1,100 shekels or a piece of silver stolen. That's the same amount Delilah was offered to ransom to give up Samson. And I told you last week that comes out to roughly 15 million dollars. So a lot of money has been stolen from her. And if your son stole that much money from you and then said. I heard you utter a curse, and I wasn't going to give it back to you, but now I'm a little afraid because of the curse, so take it back. Do you then say, blessed be my son? (laughs) Is that the response? No, I hope not. I hope not. But this is her response, and we may want to go past it, but we shouldn't. This is a woman who is not... Too concerned about holding her son accountable, worried about the formation of his character, trying to teach him how to be humble in, in receiving grace and apology. None of this. She doesn't seem to care. And the, results, the result is that she has a son who ends up entitled and never grows and is immature and is what we're going to see him. And again, she's unnamed. So this is typical. The family, you see, remember, has continued to erode. This is what moms are like in Israel. So then we turn to Micah, and you look at his worship practices. First, the fact that he steals that much money, or any money from his mom is a problem, of course. Then at least if he is a Jew, he seems to be pious, right? He wants a shrine, he wants a Levite. But the right response would have been, if he he knew Leviticus, is to not only give the mom back the money, but restore a fifth more on top of it, to restore this to her. Then go and offer a sacrifice at the tabernacle, which was in Shiloh. There's no mention of that at all. No talk about anything biblical here. Just, I'm going to give it to you because I don't want the curse on me. That's all we hear. Um, He then makes idols. So he doesn't know how to relate to God. So he makes these idols. And if you don't know, it says they're carved one and one of metal. What it looks like it probably was is they made one out of wood for him and then they poured molten steel on top of it and it came over the idol. So it was then a wood image with steel overlay. Or, sorry, some sort of metal overlay. Now, he then not only has idols and a a private shrine, when that's clearly something you shouldn't do, but then he ordains one of his sons to become a priest, which is all kinds of wrong in Israel, because, you see, there's no other god in Israel. right? There's no other king. He is king, so he ordains who he wants. And we see this dangerously even today in the modern church, where some denominations and groups think, I'm just going to call whoever I want an apostle and a priest and a pro, whatever I want. I'm just going to ordain them. No, nothing there. I just feel it's right. It's a dangerous game to play. It's an unbiblical game to play. But he does this. So this is his character. Um, he then when and this again. But when there's no other God but you, you don't have to appease another God, just yourself, and that becomes this. And look at what it does. He's got this pagan religion where he just tries to manipulate the god, which we've talked about. But then he has this, the most pathetic, and I mean pathetic, when I say pathetic here, I don't mean like stupid. I mean it makes you feel sadness for them. Like I read it and I'm actually sad because of so many people today who think this. When the Danites come and take his idols away, the saddest words maybe in the entire book of Judges, he says you take away, first of all, he says it's very pathetic. You take away the gods that I made. Boy, that's Contradiction, isn't it? How can you take away the gods you made? The very fact that you made them means they're not gods. right? So that's sad. But then it's even worse. When they take them away, he says in verse 24, and what have I left? See what's happened? These idols, they're everything to him. And if you take away my idols and my priests, what have I left? I've got nothing else. Because as we've said time and again, idols will drain. They'll suck everything from you and leave you empty. And so when they rob him, Of his idols, he's left with nothing. And this is the challenge and the problem with idols. Idols will always be subject to something stronger. If your idol is your family, and I've said this before, and I'm not suggesting you don't love your family and your kids. You should. But you will stand before the Lord on your own. They will stand before the Lord on their own. They will leave you either by having a family of their own, through death, through travel, through any number of things. God alone is your hope. And that is important because if anything can be robbed from you, it should not be placed above God in your life. And so all of us need to kind of think, and it's a healthy practice, I think, for Christians to think, if I lost the thing that I think is most dear to me, would I be okay? If I lost whatever it is, my pastoral job, would I be okay? If I lost my kids, Lord willing, it's not going to happen. That's not, we're not wishing it. We're not health and wealthers, right? We're not name it and claim it who say, oh no, if I think that, it's going to happen. It's not the God we serve. But it's good practice when David says, though my mother and father abandoned me, I will trust in the Lord. He's not wishing his parents will leave him. He's just thinking, boy, will I trust God when there is nothing else to trust? Do I love him more than anything? And this is the question, where, this is what makes me so sad for Micah because there's always something stronger than an idol. If your health is your idol, there's old age, there's cancer, there's any number of things. If it's your career, there's always downsizing, and economic downturn. If it's your service at church, there's always someone who's not gonna appreciate it. And so there's always something stronger that will take it away. So we need to be afraid when we start thinking that. And here's Michael Horton, a New Testament, I guess he's a systematic theologian. um, And in a book called Recovering Our Sanity, he says this: Since we have made ourselves God, we fear anything and everything that we perceive as a threat to our reign. The extent to which we have lost the fear of God will increase our fear of everyone and everything else. And it's true. Whatever you will fight to the death for is an idol. Maybe not a bad one. They'll fight to death for your family in a healthy way. I think we should. I get that. But we need to. see. When, some, when you really get anxious that something is going to be taken from you, it's good to do some inventory and say, what am I afraid of here? Why am I afraid of it being taken? Because idols will always leave you anxious. I've used the example here of me many times, because I'm a guy who built my identity, as a young man especially, on my education. And even though I have read all the books I've quote, I've done it, I've done the studies, I've had, the, I've won, taken the classes, all that stuff, There's still a part in me, even today, that says, I'm a fraud. I'm a fraud. I've done all the work, but because I know my identity is too often, I'm too prone to basing it on my accomplishments and my intellect, I am always afraid that I'm going to be made to look stupid. It's always that hint in me. And this is what we're seeing, how they leave us empty with nothing else. Anxiety is what we feel when we have not fully trusted in God. Fear and anxiety are byproducts of idolatry. They'll always come with them. So, I move on to number two. So they'll leave us empty. But they also, leave us, uh, they also mislead us, and this is that Levite. Oh, it's an it's a interesting story. But let me start with C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says something. He's uh, one of his books, um, he uses this example. He says, you know, there's these moments that we have in our lives of clarity, even if you're a skeptic, where for a moment, something breaks in on your skepticism, And you start to think, gosh, maybe there is a God. But, he says, you know, if that example happens at all, don't worry, it'll go away soon. Because the moment you're thinking that, you step out onto the street and you see the bus go by, you hear the guy calling out the newspaper, you find bills in your mailbox, and you realize all of a sudden that real life drowns that feeling you had. And so it pushes it aside. I don't have to worry, it can't be true. This is real, right? Buses. Jobs, bills, that's reality. Not the sneaking suspicion that I have a, a, a debt that I can't pay. That's not, that's not real. And that feeling and that sense is exactly what happens to, this, to, to the Levite here. Um, and here's another caution. Just because you don't feel empty doesn't mean you are full. Okay? Just because you don't sense that you are empty doesn't mean you're full. And this is the misleading part about idols. And let's look at this Levite. So in the story of Levite, there's a tale of two stories. The reality he's experiencing and feeling and seeing, and the one that we all know as readers that's really going on. So that's the story. He goes from a vagrant looking for a place to live, um, to then grow, become a family priest, to then become a tribal priest in one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's actually a pretty good story. He's an ambitious guy. You know, his heart is glad when the Danites offer him a job, and he's moving on up to the east side to a deluxe apartment in the sky. (laughs) Who remembers that? You guys are old enough to remember it. Um, (laughs) And he's feeling good. He's growing. And this is the danger for all of us, pastors especially. Isn't it wonderful when a bigger church wants you? When a website or a pastor, somebody wants you to speak at a conference. And for pastors, it's a terrible thing, but we all have it. We all have that idea of success. When will I have made it? And he's, but he's feeling good. He's growing. It looks he's gone from rags to riches. A Tony Bennett song. Um, but we know he is misled. So let's look at the two perspectives. First, the appearance. He does well. He rises quickly. Right. He doesn't struggle with any sense of emptiness. Sometimes Christians say things like, "Yeah, I know he's a billionaire, but he can't be happy." Yeah, he is. Like really happy. He he's, doesn't have this latent inside where he's sad. I believe Bill Gates is a very happy man, generally. I believe he is wrapped in sin and needs to repent, but I think he's a happy guy. I don't think every atheist and skeptic rocks around thinking, boy, I really wish I was them. I, don't, I just don't think they do that. This guy has no issue with his conscience. Nothing is, nothing is speaking to him. This Holy Spirit is not saying, you're a sinner. It says, we see no evidence of that here. He thinks he's doing very well. He's the envy of many people, it would seem. And yet we know all that's going on is not good. And here's how we know it, if we read it carefully. And you, even if you don't, you would have sensed there's a problem here. First, he leaves Bethlehem. He is in Bethlehem, which we all know is an important theological center for, Israel, for God's people. And he says, this isn't the place for me. I've got to go somewhere else. So we know right away he's leaving a place of great significance to make a place for himself, which is interesting. The place to be was really as a Levite, if you're going to be anywhere, is one of two places Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, or in one of the 48 towns that were given to the Levites to live in. That's what he should have been doing, but he's not. He's looking for his own place. In fact, what you may not know is of all the Levites, Levites didn't earn, didn't live off of the tithes of people in the church. All the Levites in Israel were broken up into 24 serving teams, and they were served two weeks at a time every year. And that's why in Luke, Zechariah, remember he goes, he's serving in the temple. It was his time. Well, he did that for two weeks, but the rest of the year he lived in one of these Levitical towns that were given to him by God. And their job there, they could own land and they could pasture sheep. They could do whatever they wanted. They could be tradespeople. So they were bivocational. They served, they worked all year, and then took two weeks to go and serve at the temple. This guy is a vagrant, seemingly. He's looking for a place. He's not, he's not following, but how, of course, how would he know? He's not even a, a Jew, really. He's only a Jew in physicality, not in any other way, because he doesn't understand where he should be. So he thinks he's doing well, but here's what we do know. He is at an unauthorized shrine. So imagine a pastor going to a, a church that's full of snake handlers. Right, it's like it's not even a church. Why are you there? Why do you think this is a success? So he's at a church that is unauthorized. He is uh, ordaining. He's being ordained by a man. He is serving with idols, which is a problem. He is chasing his profile. He breaks the contract he has with the family, even if it's a crooked one. He breaks it. He steals from his boss to uh, to go to another rogue cultic center with the Danites. And if you look at a map, there's something interesting. The Danites at this point are, for your perspective, along the coast of Israel, right? That's where the Philistines were, where um, uh, Goli- or Samson was at Gaza and so on. They moved 220 kilometers north to look for a place at Laish, this place that they eventually sack. Laish is outside of the Promised Land. So here we have a guy who thinks he's a real success as a pastor, But he's pastoring a church with no theology that doesn't honor God, that isn't authorized by God, with idols for a a tribe in a land that is outside the promised land. And in the book of Revelation, you may remember, of all the tribes, which one is not named as getting to heaven? Dan. That's a problem, right? It's not named. So here we have the appearance is He's moving on up to the east side. But what we know is this is a horrible, horrible life choice he's making. And so, you see, one of the problems of idols is they mislead you to think that you're doing well when God and you are at odds. You may think that, as and Lewis again says it so well, in middle age, he says, you know, my age is the worst time, he says, because all that while as a middle-aged person, you think you're making your way in the world, but the world is really making its way in you. You're under the impression that I'm successful, I've got a job, I'm promoted, people have a reputation, I have money in the bank, I can go to France if you want to go to France. And that's not bad things. But we think that that's success. But idols will make you look and say, look, this is the reality. Remember what, what Satan does to Jesus on the, in, the, in the wilderness? Look before you. Isn't this everything? But we have to see beyond it. And when we look beyond it, we see this is not good. One commentator says, what we find is a self-seeking priest at an illegal shrine with idols for a fallen tribe outside of the promised land. And that is exactly what he is. He's been misled, and idols will mislead you. I assure you, especially if you're a young person, don't strive for the Instagram nonsense you see. Don't strive for it. Don't strive for a happy home. Oh, sorry, let me qualify that. a <laughs> happy home, of course. Don't strive for the, 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 the trappings of happiness. Because Scripture is so wonderful. Seek Christ, and all else will be thrown in. You'll not find happiness in Wealth. And if there's any, I have wealthy people here who know that. And we shouldn't need any more advice. Just watch the media. Watch Tiger Woods. Watch Ravi Zacharias. Watch these men and women who do well, and then tell us, it's not what it's cracked up to be, but of course, what do we say? No. If I had it, I'd be different. Boy, we're stupid, right? We are. They can mislead us, so they mislead. Third thing is it makes us brutal. There's a, uh, a psychologist, and he is, a not again, not a Christian. And he writes, I hope it's a tongue-in-cheek article I read. It's called Self-Deification. Okay? His name is Jeremy Sherman. And remember, I think he is being, he's joking. I think but if he's not, then I have a real lot of problems. But imagine this being tongue-in-cheek. He says this, Have a revelation. Wake up to some universal truth, a formula for, for being right always. It doesn't really matter much. Uh, matter which revelation, just so, just grab one. It could be spiritual, philosophical, or religious. The best revelations reveal that the people who, have, who have it, are like gods, in possession of a truth so important that it is their moral obligation to attack and defeat everyone who disagrees with it. Trust your gut from now on. Having absorbed the revelation, you're now perfect, omniscient, nothing more to learn ever. And anyone who attacks you for what you do and say is attacking the sacred revelation you already embody perfectly. Therefore, it's your moral duty to attack and defeat them. Escalate freely. The bigger their challenge, the more vicious your attack. You're on a crusade because you have seen the light. Be the supreme, supreme and final judge who decides who's right in every debate you enter. After all, you're God now, so have no other God higher than you. By the way, self-deification is the perfect antidote for feeling inadequate. It's much simpler than learning to grow. Now, I assume that's a joke. Um, but you see, he gets the point. When we become God, and you may not even know, it, you know, most people would not say they've become God, but you see it in their actions, and hopefully in your own actions. When you begin to think, what I believe is right, it's always right. I'm not talking scripturally either. I'm talking about, well, it could be scripturally things, when sometimes scripture is gray, but we think we know the black and the white. That could be a problem. But when you think about, and we, when I did the heresies class, we talked about this what you vote for does not determine your salvation, right? You can be a Christian and vote for anyone you want, and God isn't saying, well, I know they're saved freely by grace, but they did vote NDP, so that's not the way it works. Mm -hmm. But when we start to think it, if we watch the wrong news outlets, the wrong idols, they make you think that, no, salvation is based on who you vote for. And what does that make you? Brutal. It makes you a jerk. Because then you start saying, Christ will forgive anything, but not that. Not that vote, because those people support abortion. And I'm not suggesting you vote in that way. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying Christ alone. And idols will make you brutal otherwise, like he's saying, because if they disagree with you, well, they shouldn't be the pastor here if he says that. Right? It'll make you angry, and because then you're going to say, anything that disagrees with me should be crushed. I should move to Texas, because Canada... Is a cesspool, Texas is the Holy Land, let's move there where nobody contradicts what we think. That's not good, right? But this is what idols will do. There's so many, this is why we did the heresies class, it's why we teach the way we do here, it's why I spend so much time in it, why I mine my own heart, is because idols will make us brutal. And watch what happens here. You have the Danites. Now, the Danites are a tribe, the the tribe of Dan, And in chapter 1, all those many weeks, months ago, at the end of the chapter, it tells you that the Danites failed to to secure the land God gave them. They're given an inheritance, but they're the ones at the end who are driven back and unable to secure the land. Now, they can't secure the land God offered them, so they lower their standards and start saying, well, let's just find anything. Let's find someplace. We need somewhere. So here is where the idol is. They know the word of God. They know, they were told by Joshua, they're told by Moses, they know what land they're supposed to get and be faithful and get it because God has given it to them. But they say, you know what, I'm not going to pay attention to that. I'm going to instead, let's look for the most unsuspecting people, the weakest, and let's just take their land. And this, this literal ignoring of the word of God happens to us so easily. And I'll give you just an example that I see, not often, but more often than not. When people want to marry non Christians, when Christians come and come to me and they say, Pastor, I want to marry, is it right that I marry a non-Christian? I say to them, "Why are you, you know the answer to this. Why are you asking me when Scripture has spoken definitively on the topic? Right? I, I know what you're trying to do. right? What you're trying to say is, I know it's wrong, but I want you to help me out here, Carl. <laughs> I want you to find a loophole like Harvey Specter in the law. right? I want you to find some way that it's okay for me to contradict the Word of God and i cannot well i should not do i hope i lord willing i won't but this is what they are doing entirely and we justify it right we pray well carl i i really prayed about it i spent time thinking about it i've discussed it i've googled it um and i think it's okay and i'm like i don't care what you think scripture has spoken and why do we contradict it? I understand. I do know the affairs of the heart. I'm a guy who became a Christian because of a girl. So I get it. <laughs> okay? I get it. I, I only listen to God because a girl told me to. I understand that. I do understand the affairs of the heart. I get it. But you see how simple, like, Dan knows what they're supposed to do and they won't do it. And the moment they refuse to acknowledge the Word of God and follow and obey it, they will obey something. And what they're obeying is their own internal desire, and the God to them now becomes, we need to find land. At the expense, like like Sherman says, like the the psychologist says, at the expense of everything else. Because land is what I must have, I will crush it. And that person, and I'm not speaking about a specific person, but that person who says, I'm going to marry this person regardless of what Redeemer and Carl say, they will break this covenant with this family, they'll contradict God, because you can offend anyone but yourself. That's what Sherman is saying. I'll offend God if I have to, because I am my God. And I understand the temptation, but my job is to call you <laughs> to greater obedience. So this is one of the things they do. And look at what Dan does. They then go to Micah. As they're marching up towards Laish, they stop at Micah's place, and what, they brutalize him. They rob him, and they threaten him. They take everything because, hey, be quiet, or, we're, or was violent, angry fellows will come upon you. you know, We're going to beat you up. We're going to kill you if we have to. Because you stand in the way of us, of our goal. And I am God. We are God. We must do it. If somebody takes that soundbite where I just said I am God and turns it into something, I'll be in context, please. Um, and this is so they, they're brutal towards Micah. Then they get to Laish, and we're told three times in the story to increase the sadness. We're we're meant. It's a great storyteller. We're meant to feel that Laish is a people unsuspecting, meaning they're just living. They're living there. They're trying to be good, whatever they're doing. They're just, but because they have separated, they're not too close to the Sidonians, they have no allies in the area, no one can help them. No one will hear their screams. Perfect, right? Perfect for the Danites. And so they butcher them. And not only butcher them, they kill everybody, and they do things to a non-Canaanite town that God says don't do. They're not told to be this brutal to anybody outside of the Promised Land. And even the Promised Land, there is rules are not following but of course there's no need to honor god's law because who's god dan and so it makes them brutal and it's funny this world today it's funny how much i'll give you an example i was in when i was a previous church in calgary we were in a rental space and we were growing too big for it so i went around trying to look for buildings that were empty or churches that were in decline to see if we could buy them or rent them and i went into a very liberal church and they had space. It's a big, beautiful, old building. I like old buildings. We're talking. And they said, yeah, come and look at the place. I then show up. I think I brought my daughter with me. I don't remember. And I show up to take a, a tour. And they stopped me at the front and said, you know what? We actually looked at your church's website. Uh, you're not an affirming church, so we don't want to rent to you. Because we're conservative. And I said, hold on. I said, I, I said, you can do what you want. It's your building. However, you're affirming? She said, oh, very much. Why don't you affirm my views? How, so you're not affirming. Uh, well, we affirm this thing. I'm like, yeah, well, that affirming, just you affirm what you want, that's not really affirming. You see, this, this ethic, the, the motto of this church is love for everyone, but not us conservatives, right? And I'm not picking on the sides, I'm showing what happens when an idol, when something other than God becomes your ultimate, when something other than God becomes your fundamental, you become the negative side of fundamentalist on either side of the debate, and it'll make you brutal. It'll make you, you're all for gathering, let's be one, let's be together, let's be one people, but not this group of people. You see, the problem with this view, with idols, is it'll say, you should never be a bigot, except to bigots, then you could be a bigot. See, there's a problem, because idols, and anything that's not God, that you make your, your ultimate, will make you this sort of a person. It's going to happen, it may just be on social media, or, Lord willing, it won't be that you gather 600 men to <laughs> attack a city. But it'll make you brutal, one way or the other. And this is where we'll close. What Micah says about his idols is what you and I should have to say about Christ. Can we say that if somebody, the only thing that if somebody tries to rob us of, which they can't rob you of, Christ, then and only then should I say, What have I left? If you take Christ from me, what have I left? And this is in that beautiful passage in John 6 when all the disciples are leaving Jesus because he has said scandalous things about how you should eat his flesh and drink his blood. And people are like, oof, too weird for me. And they leave him. And he asks the disciples, are you going to go too? And wonderfully, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There is no better God out there. There's no other God out there at all, but there's no better God. He alone is the one we put our heart into, only our lives into. And when that happens, we see that we aren't left empty, but we're filled. Because he'll not only take, he takes from you only the things that you shouldn't have, and he fills you at his own expense. You're not misled, but you're led to reconciliation. And you don't become brutal, because on the cross, he bore the brutality you deserved. And all of us are Micah and the Levite and, and Dan. We have all run from God. And he has put himself in our place. So I'm urging all of us, Christian, of course, to, again, repent. And I'm not saying repent for salvation. I'm saying repent because this week, you have contradicted your relationship with Christ. In some way, you've compromised it. So we repent and we say, Lord, we, want, we don't want anything between us. As a skeptic, I would say stop serving men and try uh, and stop trying to be um, become gods for yourselves. Start serving the one. Oh, this is yeah. Sorry, this is what I was thinking. I'm like, what did I write there? Here's what I wrote. Remember Noval Harari? Remember uh, Yuval Noah Harari? And he says um, history began when men when God created when men created gods, and it'll end when men become gods. He's wrong. History begins again because a God became man. And because God became man, you can have eternal life. And so Harari is wrong. He's under the impression that we will destroy this world. Friends, it's Christ's world. He will call an end to it when he says. He will bring it to himself when he says. There's no, you, we we can be freed from this idea. History begins again when you accept the God who became man and stop trying to be a man becoming God very simple. Let's pray.